Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Well, well, thank you, Tim, for that introduction, which could be very much appreciated by other academics. But for you students, I promise you I'm not as boring as that sounds. Okay. Okay, well, it is good to be here after a three-year wait. And in fact, this is my first kind of in-person seminar, conference, speaking engagement entirely. So it truly is a pleasure to be here. So what I want to just talk about today, and I realize I have a general audience, that just to kind of introduce you to how game theory can be useful to shedding light on some of society's problems, both in terms of coming up with new solutions, but also in terms of understanding and evaluating ideas that haven't been developed through game theory, but game theory can help, help us kind of understand what the behavioral response will be to these new policies. Now, before getting into some of those applications, let me just kind of frame game theory. Um, we go back and look at the development of calculus by Newton and Leibniz. Well, Newton did, developed calculus for the purpose of understanding physical phenomena. That is, needed a mathematical tool in order to answer some questions regarding physical phenomena. And it's in that same spirit that mathematicians like John von Neumann and John Nash and many others developed game theory. But it was to understand and shed light on social phenomena. So there is that kind of parallel, but I want to temper any expectations in that game theory has nowhere near achieved the accomplishments for social phenomena that calculus has with physical phenomena. And part of the reason is that you know, social phenomena are just a lot more difficult. You know, trying to understand the movement of massive objects okay, in, the, in the galaxy is actually an easier problem than trying to understand the interactions of all these kind of minuscule specks in the galaxy. Okay? But that's what we're after, to try to understand that. And here's quotations from two eminent physicists to kind of make that point. Okay, so game theory, as I said, it's a tool for social phenomena and specifically for analyzing strategic situations. So what defines a strategic situation? Well, you have two more individuals making decisions. There's an interdependence between them in that what one person does affects the well-being of others. But most critically, there's an interdependence in their reasoning processes in that what is best for someone to do depends upon what they think the other person is going to do. And what's best for the other person depends upon what they think that first person is going to do. And, and it's that interdependence makes it a very challenging problem. And that's what game theory can so deliver, is you know, how, do you, how do you solve that, 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 that interconnection of these reasoning processes to come up with something kind of insightful in, in the context here to understand something about the implications of policies. So I just have 
you know, 45, 50 minutes. So I just want to kind of illustrate, you know, through a few applications, what, what game theory can do. And we're going to look at it in the context of bribery. And, and specifically, uh, it's kind of motivated by bribery in India, which really permeates society there. Traffic congestion, which we all kind of suffer from. And sexual harassment and assault, which is relevant to both organizations and kind of universities and colleges. And as I said, we're going to see with these different applications that game theory can be useful for coming up with new policies, but also evaluating the ideas of others, kind of understand, once again, the behavioral response. And that really is the challenge. You come up with a new policy that changes the environment within which people interact and they make their decisions. And they're going to change because other people change in response to the policy. And trying to sort all that out is what game theory can help us do. So let's jump right in. Let's look at bribery. And we're going to specifically look at this in the context of what are called harassment bribes. And these are bribes paid to get what you really are entitled. It could be that you need a passport, or you are supposed to get an income tax refund, or a train ticket. All these things in India, you know, you go up to the desk, go up to the clerk, and they're supposed to just give you these things, but in some, many instances, they'll ask for a bribe in order for you to get what you're entitled to. So, in India, like a lot of places, you know, it's illegal to give a bribe, it's illegal to take a bribe. So before introducing the policy that was proposed, let's uh, kind of look, we're going to look at, you know, what the situation was prior to it, and this is the individual who proposed this policy. Okay, so I will actually state the policy, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at the environment without that policy and see how the environment and behavior changes with the policy. Kaushik Basu is actually a game theorist at Cornell University, but he was on leave as the chief economic advisor to the Ministry of Finance in India. And he saw this problem with bribery that was just permeating society. So he put forth the following proposal. It is still illegal to take a bribe, but he proposed making it lawful to give a bribe. And if you took a bribe and you're convicted, you'd have to give the bribe back, and then you would suffer the penalties that are already on the books. So his big changes are actually very simple. Just saying, giving a bribe is actually lawful, taking a bribe is unlawful. So let's start by looking at the situation before this policy change, or policy proposal. He actually couldn't convince you know, the people in government to, to implement it. Uh, so, so this is a situation where Uh, both the giving and the taking of a bribe are illegal. And I'll walk you through this. This is a decision tree. If you have seen some game theory, it's in extensive form, but just think of it as a decision tree. And what we have here is we have a government employee who's going to decide whether or not to ask for a bribe or, uh, to ask for a bribe or not. If they ask for a bribe, a citizen is going to have to decide whether or not to pay the bribe or not. And if they do pay the bribe, they have to decide whether or not they want to report this to the authorities. Now, in terms of what's kind of represented at the end of these branches on decision tree, these are the payoffs, measures of well-being to the two individuals we're looking at here, the government employee who might be taking, asking for and taking a bribe, and the citizen who potentially is going to be given a bribe. So if the government employee does not ask for a bribe, well, they're just going to get zero. They just 
perform the function they're supposed to perform without a bribe, the citizen's going to get a, a payoff of V that measures how much they value this transaction. It would be like, for example, the value of getting the passport or getting the train ticket or the tax refund. If the government employee asks for the bribe and the citizen chooses not to pay the bribe, then they both end up zero. The government employee doesn't get any money, the citizen doesn't get what, what, they, what they wanted, such as a passport. If they pay the bribe and the citizen does not report, then what do they end up with? Well, the government employee ends up with the bribe B. The citizen ends up with the value of the transaction because they do get what they want, but, they, but we have to subtract out the bribe that they have to pay. If they report, the payoffs are exactly the same except we have to net out X. X is the cost of the penalty. Okay, so here's a very simple setup, but it's useful for understanding, once again, the incentives involved between these two individuals. And the way we solve this is through backward induction. And what we want to do here is just go down to this last decision node and say, well, let's suppose a bribe has been asked for, the citizen has paid the bribe, and now the citizen has to decide whether or not to report it to the authority. And the best thing to do at that point is not to report it. Because if they don't report it, well, they have their value from the transaction less the bribe they paid. If they report it, they get the value of the transaction less the bribe they paid, less the penalty they have to incur because they've just informed the authorities they've broken the law. So they don't want to report. Okay, so now we go up the tree and we say, well, in anticipation of that, the citizen when approached, you know, to ask for a bribe is going to pay the bribe because they'd rather Get the, get the transaction, even if they pay the bribe, then to just get zero. And then we go up to the government employee, and that's the big decision here. And that's what's going to be impacted by this new policy. In anticipation of the fact that the citizen is going to pay the bribe and not going to report it because it's in their best interest not to do so, the, the government employee is going to ask for the bribe. And so they're going to end up down here and they're going to get the nice payoff in terms of the bribe. In setting things up here for the policy, the effect of the policy, keep in mind here that when we get down to the issue of the citizen reporting, the interests of the bribe taker and the bribe giver coincide. Neither wants it, the authorities to know about it because both have broken the law. And that's what the government employee counts on when they ask for the bribe. They know that it's they anticipate it's going to be paid and the, and the individual is not going to report it. So now what we're going to do is say, let's introduce now this policy change where giving a bribe is lawful. And in fact, if you report it and uh, then, then the, and, and the individual is convicted of giving the bribe, excuse me, of, of, of taking the bribe, then what's going to happen? You're going to get the bribe back and you're not going to incur any sort of penalty because it's lawful to give a bribe. So once again, we can kind of go through and solve this. And now we get down here to, if the bribe was paid, the citizen's now going to have incentive to report it. Because they get the value of the transaction V, and if they don't report it, well, they don't get the bribe back. Working our way back up the tree, we can see here that the citizen is going to then pay the bribe, because if they don't pay the bribe, they don't get the, they don't get the passport. They pay the bribe, they get the passport, but then they're going to report it, they get the bribe back. And now we get to the really important decision, the government employee. 
Now they're not going to want to ask for a bribe. Because they anticipate that the bribe will be given, but then it will be reported. Because the citizen now doesn't have, is, is, is incentivized to report it because they will not be reporting that they've broken the law. And in fact, they anticipate getting the bribe back. And what's really critical here is what this change does, change in policy, it now causes the interest of the citizen and the government employee to diverge at the reporting stage. So now, because of the fact that giving a bribe is lawful, there's every incentive to report it for the bribe giver. And the bribe taker, of course, doesn't like the fact that it's reported because, it, because taking a bribe is still unlawful. So just understanding how the, the simple change in policy kind of changes incentives, which uh, can then have a, an impact in terms of the incentives to demand a bribe. Okay, and I just, okay, so that was the first one. And so that was a, where Kaushik Basu just had a simple model and he kind of came up with this idea that here's a way in which to reduce the incentives to demand bribes. Now let's look at the traffic congestion. And the hero of the moment is Dietrich Bryce, who made this kind of very counterintuitive observation that you can have a transportation network, just think about Atlanta, uh, and in particular, it's going to be applicable where the, it's a congested transportation network. And you can add a road to it, and you actually increase travel time. And you think about that, that seems really strange. Here you're adding a road, more options, but you're, you're actually resulting in longer travel times. And, and game theory is useful for explaining how that can happen, because how it's going to affect everyone's Kind of all the drivers' response to this, to this, to this uh, new option. But you would think adding options can't make things worse, but it can. And that's a feature of strategic situations. Yeah. So let's go through a simple example, kind of make this point. But it's a, it's a broader point. So let's suppose what we have, we have 4,000 drivers who begin at start and want to get to end. You can think about start, this is where they live. End is where they work. And so they're commuting. And we're going to keep things simple. They have just two routes to get to work. They can go from start to A, and then from A to their, their work, which is end. Or they can go from start to B and B to end. And that's each, each individual's choice. And then we'll just say there's 4,000 drivers. If someone decides to go from start to A and A to end, the total travel time is assumed to be T divided by 100, where T is how many people take this route from, from start, the road from start to A. So if 3,000 people take that route, it's going to take 30 minutes to travel it. And we're going to assume, just really for simplicity, that going from A to end always takes 45 minutes. So you can think about start to A is, is a road that that's, tends to get congested, but A to end there's plenty of space and, and plenty, of, plenty of roads and congestion's not an issue. Okay, from the other possibility is go from start to B and we're gonna assume that the road there is congestion free, but going from B to end, that one is subject to congestion. So if 2,000 people go from B to end, it's gonna take 2,000 divided by 100 or 20 minutes to go from B to end. 
And what we just want to do here is to assume each of these 4,000 drivers wants to minimize their commuting time, their travel time. And we want to look for an equilibrium. That is where things settle down and everyone, every driver is doing the best they can given what the other drivers are doing. It's called the Nash equilibrium, going back to John Nash, whose image you saw earlier. Uh, but it, it describes, where, as I said, people make a lot of choices and things kind of settle down to where, okay, everyone's doing the best they can given what the other drivers are doing. And I want to argue that the equilibrium here solution is 2,000 drivers go from start to A to A to end, and the other 2,000 go from start to B to B to end. You know, which is really not too surprising, but I'll kind of go through kind of the, ca the cal calculation associated with that. You got two routes. The routes are basically symmetric, and so the drivers equally divide themselves up. So let's first of all see what happens when, you know, in terms of travel time, if they do that. So think about these 2,000 drivers going up through A. Uh, for each of them, it's going to take 20 minutes to go from start to A, 2,000 divided by 100, plus 45 minutes to go from A to end, so the total travel time is 65 minutes. And that'll be true as well from those that go from start to B to B to end. So if they equally divide themselves up to these two routes, each has a travel time of 65 minutes. Let me convince you that that's in equilibrium in the sense that given what the other 3,999 drivers are doing, an individual driver cannot reduce their commuting time. So just think about one of those 2,000 drivers that are right now going through A. They have a commuting time of 65 minutes. Suppose they say, oh, how about I think about going through B? It's going to be 45 minutes here. Going through here, it's going to be 2,001 divided by 100. One additional driver now, the one we're thinking about. And that's going to increase then the travel time on this segment from, from 20 minutes to 20.01 minutes. So one of those 2,000 drivers that's right now going through A, if they think about going through B, is going to see a slight rise in their travel time from 65 minutes to 65.01 minutes. Now that's not much of an increase, but the point is, it is an increase. So there's no incentive for anyone to start doing anything different. So that's the situation in place. So now let's think about adding a road. We're going to add a road between these two, A and B. And in fact, we're going to make this road really attractive. And obviously this is physically unrealistic, but it kind of serves to make the point that it takes zero time to go from A to B or B to A. So it's a great road. I mean, you're adding a road to this network. You think that's great? And not only that, it's a road that takes no time to traverse. Well, I want to show you that the addition of that road is going to increase travel time. Let's first of all, let me first of all uh, explain that the addition of the road is going to upset the current equilibrium. Right now the current equilibrium is 2,000 go through A, 2,000 go through B. Now we put in this new road, so what's going to happen here? And that should be, uh, I should say, 40.01. So think about someone saying, well, how about I instead go up to A, but now I use this new road, go down to B, and then take the segment from B to N. So what's my travel time going to be? Well, I got 2,000, it's 20 minutes here, because there's 2,000 people going to that segment. I come down here to B, no time on that segment. 
And then on this segment here, there's 2001 drivers. So now it's 20.01 minutes on that segment. So I've reduced travel time from 65 minutes to 40.01 minutes. So all that really shows is that when you put in the road, the current kind of equilibrium in terms of how people are driving is going to be upset. People are going to change what they're doing. Because given what everyone else is doing, using that segment, new road actually is advantageous. But this is where game theory comes in to say, okay, that's, that's for one driver, but all the drivers are going to kind of see that advantage. What is going to be the new equilibrium? If they all make their decisions and they kind of learn about which ways are faster and it settles down, what is it going to look like? And what I want to argue is, is that this is going to be the solution. Everyone's going to go from start to A, take that new road, and then go from B to end, and that the total travel time is going to be 80 minutes. Because you've got 4,000 people going here, that's 40 minutes. 4,000 people going here, that's another 40 minutes, you have 80 minutes. And if you recall, before we put in the road, the travel time was 65 minutes. So what I'm claiming here is the introduction of this road is increases travel time by 15 minutes for everyone. So what I have to do now is convince you that this new configuration is indeed an equilibrium that is, given everyone else is doing this, an individual driver cannot do better. So let's think about the alternatives. Think about a driver going from start to A, not going down to B, but just going from A to end. Well, it's going to be 40 minutes here, because for all 4,000 drivers are doing that segment. 45 minutes here, so that's 85 minutes. That's higher than the 80 minutes from going start to A, A to B, B to end. So that's worse. Uh, similarly, you can, it's the same calculation if you go from start to B, B to end. It's 45 and 40, so you get 85 minutes. And the other option here is to go from start to B, you're going kind of now the opposite way of everyone else. Instead of going up to A, B to N, now you go to B to A to N. Well, it's going to be 45 plus 45, 90 minutes. Once again, that's higher than 80 minutes. So if all of the other drivers go from start to A, A to B, and B to N, you cannot do any better than to do the same. And everyone's travel time has gone up. This is Bryce's paradox. Doesn't always occur but particularly likely to occur when you already have a congested network. And so there, the value of game theory is, hey listen, before you add a road to a network, you're going to need to make some predictions about how people are going to respond to it. And if you don't do that, you might have spent a lot of money, which actually made the situation worse. Okay, the third application is to sexual harassment and assault. And there's obviously a lot of problems associated with that, but what I want to particularly focus upon is the underreporting problem. That there are disincentives when someone has been subject to an assault or harassment to report it. Because there are costs attached, and we'll get into, into that in, in just a moment. And the problem with underreporting, of course, is that, well, then that can lead to more of this type of activity more harassment assaultment. assault because someone may engage in activity knowing that it's going to be unlikely that it's going to be reported. So the policy proposal we're going to look at here wasn't developed through game theory, it was independently. 
uh, outside of that. But we can see how game theory can help us understand you know, why it is that, that it works. Okay. okay, so this is the situation. You have a victim of an assault and harassment, and they have to decide whether or not to report it. And what we're imagining here is that if they are the lone report against this individual, that it's not going to be good for them. The, that person, we're going to presume here, is not going to be disciplined or punished. Uh, and, and the reporting, the individual reports it, could themselves be harassed or ostracized. Okay. So that's, that's the concern here and that's in terms of, of, of possible reporting. Now, there might still be a reason to report because the, the hope there is that there are other victims out there who will then, in response to this report, will report themselves. And if that occurs, well, you know, then that's a good outcome from having reported. Because then the person's going to be disciplined. And the person who is reporting, well, they're one of several people who have reported, and they're not going to be punished. Okay. So that's kind of the setup. And once again, I'm going to put forth a really simple model of this. Let's assume here that the payoff to not reporting is just zero. And that just means that's kind of like this, the status quo. This is uh, if, if, there, if nothing changes. If the individual reports and no one else reports, then we're going to assume they incur a loss of L. Okay, so if they're the only report, then, then once again, there could be all sorts of ostracism and the like that you know, we've seen in cases. But if they report and someone else reports, then they get some gain G. Okay. And all this is saying is that relative to not reporting, if you report and no one else reports, you're worse off. If you report and someone else reports, you're better off. That's all that we're assuming here. Okay, so once again, we're just going to use a kind of a simple setup to uh, convey, convey the main points. You can think about this as one way in which to represent the situation the victim faces. That is, there's some probability, which we'll say 1 minus p, that there's no other victim out there. Or at least, you know, no other victim that could possibly report. You know, so it might be there are other victims, but no longer in the organization and they wouldn't be aware of the public statement of the report. In that case, if the victim reports, then they're going to get that negative payoff minus L, because there's no one else out there to report. And if they don't report, then they're going to get zero. So if they knew that was the state of the world, if they knew that there was no other victim out there to report, then clearly they would not want to report. But they're uncertain about that. With probability P, however, they say that, well, there is another victim out there. And if I report, or the victim reports, it, we're, let's just assume that that other victim has a similar set of uh, payoffs, that they, in response, would, would, would find it optimal to report. Because you'd get a payoff of G versus zero for not reporting. Okay? So, so here we just think about some, some probability there's another victim out there. They're like, you know, they're like this victim. And if this victim reports, it's going to incentivize the other one to report. Because okay? then you'll have multiple reports. That's, that's what we're assuming here. And if this victim does not report, well, similarly, that, that other victim is not going to report. Okay? So this, you can think, this is, these are the possible outcomes to reporting. 
and there's uncertainty over what's going to occur because there's uncertainty over whether there's another victim out there. So you can think about the expected payoff from reporting is given by this expression here. With one minus, probably one minus P, there's no other victim out there to report. And by reporting, this victim is going to get a payoff of minus L. And with probability P, there is a victim out there. And by reporting, and of course this is public, that will incentivize this other victim to come forward and then they'll get the higher payoff of G. And to, for it to be in the best interest of the victim report, that expected payoff has to be greater than zero, where zero is the payoff you, that they get from not reporting. Okay, okay so all we've done is kind of set up a, a simple structure to kind of capture some of the potential forces at play or factors associated with the decision of whether or not to report. And there's that same condition. And we can rearrange it to this expression, which says the probability that you, uh, the victim assigns to someone else being out there, another victim who could report, has to be greater than some, some critical value. Now the only point I want to make here is that this condition is going to have to hold in order for it to be in their best interest to report. And it need not hold. If this probability uh, that the individual assigns to there be another victim or victim who could report is sufficiently small, they're not going to report. If the loss, L, from being the only one to report is sufficiently great, they're not going to report. So what you could have here is, is in, in, in reality, there could be two victims out there, but neither of them report. And that's kind of recognized. I mean, that's, that's the concern. That's the problem. So what I want to do, since we have the time, is I want to show a five-minute video YouTube video on this kind of new program to try to incentivize victims to report. And then we'll see how that kind of changes the structure of the setting which, I, which, which we've been looking at thus far. Okay. Uh, let's see. Oh. Sorry. Okay. Uh, I have no stock in this company, I, I promise you. Okay, here we go. Hannah is excited to be going to college. She couldn't wait to get out of her parents' house to prove to them that she's an adult and to prove to her new friends that she's a mom. She heads to a campus party where she sees a guy that she has a crush on. Let's call him Mike. The next day, Hannah wakes up with a pounding headache. She can only remember the night in flashes. But what she does remember is throwing up in the hall outside Mike's room and staring at the wall trying to angle he was inside her, wanting it to stop, then shakily stumbling home. She doesn't feel good about what happens, but she thinks maybe this is just what sex in college is. One in five women and one in 13 men will be sexually assaulted at some point during their college career in the United States. Less than 10% will ever report their assault to their school or to the police. And those who do, on average, wait 11 months to make the report. Hannah initially just feels like dealing with what happened on her own. 
the one she sees Mike taking girls home from parties, she's worried about them. After graduation, Hannah learns that she was one of five women who Mike did the exact same thing to. And this is not an unlikely scenario because 90% of sexual assaults are committed by repeat offenders. But with such low reporting rates, it's fairly unlikely that even repeat perpetrators will be reported, much less anything happen if they are. In fact, only 6% of assaults were reported to the police and with the assailant spending a single day in prison, meaning there's a 99% chance that they'll get away with it. This means there's practically no deterrent to assault in the United States. Now, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist by training. I'm interested in systems and networks and where we can concentrate our resources to do the most good. So this, to me, is a tragic but a solvable problem. So when the issue of campus assault started hitting the news a few years ago, it felt like a unique opportunity to make a change. And so we did. We started by talking to college survivors. But what they wish they had in college is pretty simple. They wanted a website, one they could use at the time and place that felt safest to them, with clearly written information about their reporting options, with the ability to electronically report their assault, rather than having the first step to go in to talk to someone who may or may not believe them with the option to create a secure timestamp document of what happened to them, preserving evidence even if they don't want to report yet. And lastly, and perhaps most critically, with the ability to report their assault only if someone else reported the same assailant. You see, knowing that you weren't the only one changes everything. It changes the way you frame your own experience. It changes the way you think about your perpetrator. It means that if you do come forward, you'll have someone else's back, and they'll have yours. We created a website that actually does this, and we launched it two months ago, we launched in August, onto college campuses. And we included a unique matching system, where if Mike's first victim had come forward, saved her record, entered into the matching system, and named Mike, and Mike's second victim had done the same thing a few months later, they would have matched, and the verified contact information of those survivors would have been sent to the authorities at the same time for investigation and follow-up. If a system like this had existed for Hannah and her peers, it's more likely that they had reported, that they had been believed, and that Mike would have been kicked off campus, gone to jail, or at least gotten the help that he needed. And if we were able to stop repeat offenders like Mike after just their second assault, following a match, survivors like Hannah would never even be assaulted in the first place. We could prevent 59% of sexual assaults just by stopping repeat perpetrators earlier on. And because we're creating a real deterrent to assault for perhaps the first time, maybe the Mike's of the world would never even try to assault anyone. The type of system I'm describing the type of system that survivors want is a type of information escrow, meaning an entity that holds on to information for you and only releases it to a third party when certain pre-agreed upon conditions are met, such as a match. The application that we built is for college campuses, but the same type of system could be used in the military or even the workplace. 
we don't have to live in a world where 99% of rapists get away with it. We can create one where those who do wrong are held accountable, where survivors get the support and justice they deserve, where the authorities get the information they need, and where there's a real deterrent to violating the rights of another human being. Thank you. Okay, this is a brilliantly simple idea. Um, so let's just kind of look at it in the context of that framework that we put forward. Okay. So this is what we, looked, we were looking at before. And we can, and we can frame what, you know, or represent what was being proposed in a change in the payoffs. The options are still the same in terms of reporting, but now it's going to be this contingent report. So what you do is you file this report which is contingent in, on someone else filing a report and then it becomes public. Otherwise it remains private. So if in fact for the victim there is no other victim out there, where before we had minus L as the payoff because that's the case where you know, they incur that loss. They report, it's public, but no one else comes forward. Well now the payoff is just zero. They're no worse off by that because it's a continued report. It remains private in the event that no one else comes forward. No one else files a continued report. And the other case here is, well, it would probably be there is another victim out there. Um, you can kind of ignore that oval, but it kind of captures the fact that one thing, another thing that changes here is, you know, the reports only become public when there are multiple reports. So before it was if the victim came out with a report that was public, other victims could respond to that. Now sometimes victims are acting kind of a, it, without knowledge of each other. But that's okay because the reports are just contingent reports. They won't be made public unless other individuals come forward. And so now if in fact they both, if there is another victim out there and they both do choose contingent reports and they're going to get that, that higher payoff G. There's going to be the kind of reaction, the response, the, the, the disciplining that they would hope would come from the report. And otherwise, you just get zero. So what this has done is it, it, it's gotten rid of that, that downside to reporting, where either submitting the contingent report doesn't have an effect, okay, you're not better off, you're not worse off, or it does have a positive effect because there's another contingent report in the system which will then have the desired effect. Okay, so the last thing I'm going to go over, and then I welcome any, any, any questions or comments. Um, and let me say, I, I should say this, I, in my game theory course at the University of Pennsylvania, I go through this just like I did here, go through the, um, the, the TED talk, and I open up and ask people, well, do you think that Penn ought to adopt that? And unfortunately, I have not been able to get Penn to adopt it. They, have, they may have their reasons. They certainly have considered it. Uh, many universities and colleges have, have adopted it. Um, and uh, so I particularly kind of welcome in terms of any sort of thoughts about that um, in the context of Kennesaw State. Uh, but let me just close with an application which actually could potentially be very useful to you all. So this is not a policy application but rather one that actually kind of occurred in the classroom. 
So this has occurred uh, in uh, an introduction to programming course at uh, Johns Hopkins. Professor Froelich was the teacher of this course, and like many teachers, he announced he was going to curve the final exam. And he said that, you know, the highest grade would receive an A, and, you know, from down there, from lower grades, they would get, you know, lower letter grades. The, the issue I want to look at here is, is the decision of a student about how hard to study for this exam. And actually, what I have here is incomplete. It should be how much to study for the exam and whether or not to take the exam. Now, you might imagine that, well, you know, that decision is going to involve a lot of different components, how many students in the class, whether they're majors and not, and so forth. But I said game theory here, just with a simple model, can, can open up kind of new solutions. And you can write down a simple game theory model where the decisions of each student is either to study and take the exam, or not study for it and not take the exam. And if you do that, you find that one solution, that is one equilibrium, is everyone studies and everyone takes the final exam. Can anyone see another solution to this problem? Another equilibrium? Okay, how, how can that be in someone's best interest to do? Because everyone's going to get the same grade. Which is? Zero. Zero. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So another solution is no one takes the exam. Everyone gets zero. That's the highest grade. And so everyone gets an A. Now you might think, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's kind of cute, but this is what happened. All the students boycotted the final, and Professor Froelich, true to his word, gave everyone, everyone an A. Here they are waiting outside the classroom, making sure everyone is consistent with the more desirable equilibrium. Now I have to conclude by saying, I like to think that I'm responsible for this, because I used to teach at Johns Hopkins, and 10% of the undergraduate class took my game theory course, and I would love to hear that my course kind of inspired this, this, this kind of solution to the problem. So with that, um, you know, I you know, welcome any sorts of comments or questions. Yes? Uh, well, um, let's put it this way. It's, it is a form of collusion, you might say. Um, there's nothing preventing it. In the, in the rules of, you know, of, you know, of the university. Um, another way to think about it is that, yeah, they're just coordinating on what's the better equilibrium for them. Um, so until the university were to put in place rules prohibiting that, you know, this is perfectly kosher. But it's not unlike, as you kind of suggest there, firms deciding that there's perhaps two equilibria. There's one where we compete and one where we get together and kind of coordinate on higher prices. And if they do that explicitly, that's unlawful. There are laws against that. Yes? Where is he? I can put that up right now. So. Yes? Can you convince my professor to do that? <laughs> oh my well, yeah, it'd be better if none of the faculty were here, because now, now they're on to you. Give everyone the same grade. I'm just not saying which grade it is. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see, was there any other? 
questions, thank comments? Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.